0: Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This, of course, is Super Bowl Sunday. You're all very much aware of that by now, and... Uh, There are parallels between this text, which we have just read, and today's Super Bowl game. Did you happen to pick up on the parallels? All right, they're there. They're as clear as can be. Okay, first of all, where are they playing the Super Bowl today? They're playing it in Santa Clara at a stadium called Levi Stadium. Okay. (laughs) And here we have Levi being called, and there's actually a meeting that takes place in his house in the Levi Stadium of that day. So that's where the event takes place. Secondly, uh, can you get tickets for the Super Bowl? No. Why? Two reasons. One, you can't afford them. Two... They're sold out. Okay, they're so, do you know the first Super Bowl game was not sold out? You look at pictures from that 50 years ago, there were a lot of empty seats. Around there, But they're all sold out. You put it on TV tonight, you'll see it's crammed in there. You'll notice we're told twice that there were a lot of people that were at Levi's for this time that we're talking about here. So that's the second thing. Third thing is a little harder to pick up on, but in reading about what's coming up this next week, I noticed there's they just throw every possible thing they can at you in terms of keeping your interest in hyping up the Super Bowl. And one of the articles that I saw said, the top 12 storylines from Super Bowl 50. Now how, I always have a question when somebody's going out the top 10 of this, top 5 of that, top 12 of something. I find myself first off saying, how do we know they're the top? that's by your definition. Somebody else might pick a different top 12 stories, but this is what they're claiming it was. Top 12 storylines from the Super Bowl. I've got 3 of them that I marked down for you. Number 1, here's a storyline from the Super Bowl. Peyton Super Bowl. Peyton Manning's last hurrah. It could very well be the last game he plays in, and most people are probably hoping so. He's just he's great football player, but uh it's done. Age has taken its toll. That's one of the storylines, fascinating storyline, I think, and kind of a heartwarming story is Demarius Thomas and his mom. If you're unfamiliar with uh, that storyline, Demarius Thomas' mom 20, was sentenced 15 years ago to a 20-year sentence in prison and for having been involved in the drug world. So Demarius Thomas, who plays for the Broncos, uh, outstanding player, his mom has never seen him play. And so the question is, will she be there? She was let out when Obama recently let out a whole lot of people because he felt that their sentences were somewhat egregious for for the way sentencing was being done. She was one of of a few thousand that was released. And so this might be the first time she gets to watch her son play football. What I think is most impressive is... Him doing something with his life, constructive, in light of what was missing in his life. And that's a great motivational story. So that's an interesting storyline. And the third one is the unsung hero. And the storyline points out that very often in a Super Bowl, somebody who you've hardly heard of, hardly known, they do have a spectacular game and they just stand out in the Super Bowl. All right. So here's three of the twelve storylines. I'd like to suggest there are three storylines in what we read about the Lord Jesus Christ just a few minutes ago. Just like the Super Bowl taking place in Levi's home, a lot of people are there, and here are three storylines that we need to grasp. First, number one, we need to see that Jesus reaches out to sinners. He reaches out to sinners. As he is walking along the way, he sees Levi, who is a tax collector. He is what is referred in some translations, he'll be called the publican. The role of the tax collector was not an honored role. The rest of the Jewish people did not like it. They were ultimately collecting taxes for Rome. Rome occupied Israel at that time. It isn't just the fact that they collected the taxes, it's the way in which it was done. It was kind of a many-tiered system before it got down to actually uh, people who had to turn their money over. But let's just put it simply this way. The ability of the publican to be able to gouge people on the taxing situation was there, and they did it. And so people were forced to pay taxes above and beyond what might be considered just or considered righteous. And where'd they go with that extra money? It went... Psh- into their pockets, and so they were looked down upon. They were the the uh, the religious leaders of the day said, "There's no there's there's no hope for the tax collectors. They have no salvation. They have sold their souls effectively, and so there's no hope for them." So this system that was fraught with corruption, they were a part of it, and they were not liked. Think of it in these terms. I I don't know where you find it to be an issue. Personally, for years, I have thought number one in the taxing code, I have thought number one, the whole concept of an inheritance tax is completely unrighteous. Why should money that has been taxed over and over and over and over and over again, now when somebody dies and they've accumulated some form of wealth, the government comes in and says, we'll take 40% of that, thank you. I find myself saying, why? You have taxed it to death. I think it is a completely unrighteous tax. It irritates me every time I think about it. And then I read in the news this past week, here's another one, that somebody, President Obama, has decided, why don't we put forth, here's a great idea. Let's tax oil at $10 a barrel so we can then take that money and we can use it to... to Uh, employ other means of of energy creation, $10 a barrel. Now think about this. Right now, oil is running into just around $30 a barrel. That's a 33% tax. Imagine the size of that tax. Do you think it's ever going to go away? We will pay that $10 forever then if that goes through. It just makes me angry to read about it. And they calculate out, it costs us about 25 cents a gallon in gas for that tax to go on, which means now, from now, for all perpetuity, every time you fill up a 12-gallon tank, you send $3 to the federal government just because somebody decided they wanted to tax oil. It just angers me. That's what the Pharisees did to people. the anger that i feel for these what i think are egregious taxation ways is what the, how the pharisees were viewed and last week we talked about uh, we talked about uh, jesus healing the the leper uh, we we described also that you know we could see ourselves as being spiritual lepers hey they these guys were definitely seen as spiritual lepers you just they are just they're nasty guys and yet jesus reaches out to them that's the storyline jesus reaches out to sinners you could see that in the in the daily herald there in jerusalem in samaria in the different places he was, this guy, this itinerant preacher, what does he do? He, he's reaching out to those who the rest of us have decided we don't want to take any time with them. We don't like them. We don't want anything to do with them. And he's reaching out to them. He's called Levi away from his taxing work and said, follow me, and called him into his inner circle. By the way, Levi will later be known as Matthew, the guy who wrote the book of Matthew for us as Jesus worked in his life and redeemed him. Jesus reaches out to sinners. That's the first thing we see. Next thing we see is Jesus hangs out with sinners. He doesn't just tell him at a distance, hey, hey follow me, and he kind of keeps him back there. Levi has a party with the other sinners that he hangs around with, and Jesus goes and he spends time in the party. He spends time there with people who are considered by the religious leaders to be absolutely corrupt, to be absolutely horrible, terrible people. This is scandalous. Truly good and righteous people just don't hang out with that type. We just don't associate with them. Them. He hangs out with sinners. Do you know what? It, it doesn't say it here. But I find myself thinking, not only that Jesus hangs out with sinners, I think he kind of enjoyed being with them. Now, you can shoot me down for that, go right ahead, because I realize it's not in the text that way. I get that. But I think there's perhaps times when Jesus, he would just say, I just love being with normal people. I just love being with people who don't have this big spiritual affront around them all the time, is de- de- declaring how great they are and always working to be this incredibly, you know, perfect person who he knows they're not. So I think he kind of enjoyed hanging out with some people sometime who didn't have this affront about them, but also who, at the same time, because they didn't have it, they understood he was speaking something to their spirit that they needed they perhaps didn't quite understand it at the beginning, but they knew there's something about this guy that's different. We need what he has here. But you just didn't do that. Some of you will remember years ago. Um, I think this must have taken place back in the 80s. I only saw one article on it. Uh, but there was a guy by the name of Woody Hayes, and he used to coach football, I believe, for Ohio State. And there was one particular play, and he was a well-known coach, and he was a winning coach. Okay, and but he he was a determined coach. And there, you know how sometimes the plays run out of bounds, and there's a tumble of people. Well, there's one point where the play, the opposing team, uh, the it comes out of bounds, and one of the opposing players is there, and he's so caught up in all of this and so frustrated by what's happening that he boom, and he cold cocks guy. You remember that, don't you, Bob? I mean, he punches this guy right up under his hound, boom, and he hits him. Okay, well, you know there are things called cameras, all right. Everybody in the world saw Woody Hayes hit this guy. You know, from a coaching perspective, that's not one of the things you're allowed to do. You don't get to punch out the other team's players. And so, like that, I mean, there was no there was no uh, need to explain anything. He lost his job, and he's out of football. Okay, he's a pariah at that point. He's a terrible guy. I believe it was the next Super Bowl. So we're only talking a couple months later. I saw one article, and it dealt with the fact that people had noticed Tom Landry and Woody Hayes hanging out at the Super Bowl. And they raised eyebrows. There were questions raised about, why is he hanging out with Woody Hayes, the pariah? You know, nobody likes that guy. He got himself thrown out of football. He was totally out of the, you know, out of line in what he did. And Tom Landry's response when it was put to him was football has been this guy's life and he hasn't got a friend in the world right now. Tom Landry's a committed believer, committed Christian. And, uh, he was reaching out in God's love, knowing that, you know what, this is what Christ would have done. Christ didn't care if the guys were pariahs. He reached out to them because he saw their need and, uh, uh, it was, it was not something received well by the others. So Jesus reaches out to sinners, number one, in calling Levi. Jesus hangs out with sinners when he goes to his house, parties down with him. And thirdly, the third storyline that we have as we read these verses is Jesus calls out the saints. Now, it's kind of hard to see there if you don't think about it for a little bit. But it's true. He calls them out. His disciples were asked, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Again, this just isn't done. Righteous people, religious people, spiritual people, God-pleasing people just did not hang out with this low life. And so his disciples have the question put to them, and somehow Jesus understands they've been asked this question. When he heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, But those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, on the surface, that just seems like, oh yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not feeling too bad right now. I'm not heading to a doctor. Why? Because I'm not feeling all that bad. Some of us here, we know, man, I gotta get to a doctor. I'm not feeling too great. It's those who are sick who go to the physician. And Jesus is saying the same thing. It only makes sense. And then so all of the righteous, all of the healthy ones are able to say, oh, that makes sense. Those guys have a need. There is an issue. And so he's going to care for those who are sick. They got a problem. We get it. Okay. But there's something hidden in there. And the something hidden in there is... Everybody is sick. He's going to those who recognize they've got a disease because those who don't recognize they have a disease aren't going to try and go care, let the physician minister to them anyways. In fact, they'll fight with the physician. I don't have a problem. Doc, who are you kidding? If you're following the football world this week, it's not related to the Super Bowl but it is related to football. A guy by the name of Johnny Manziel. Johnny Manziel came into the league a couple years ago, first round draft pick. They called him Johnny Football. Apparently, an incredible talent was supposed to turn the Browns around. He has had nothing but trouble. Drinking, partying. Uh, his girlfriend has called the police on him, and now there's a uh, there to be said. You know, he can't go near her for two years. Uh, All sorts of legal things that are happening. And these are the storylines about Johnny Manziel this week. First one that I read was, somebody's got to get this guy help. Forget football. This is a hurting young man. Somebody's got to get him help. Next one that I read was, his father twice in the past week has pleaded with him to go get help. Third one that I saw, Charlie Sheen has tweeted out that, Johnny Manziel effectively needs to get some help. I wish him well. When Charlie Sheen is the one offering you encouragement, you got a problem, okay? But what, so far, and it could have changed since the last thing that I read, but what is it? What's the issue? He doesn't see the need. His dad is concerned he, won't, he literally might not live through the next year. It's that bad. But until he sees the need, he's not going for help. And that's what Jesus has in here. Those who are sick, uh, the, the well don't have a need for a physician. Some people don't realize, like Johnny Manziel, that they are sick. I did not realize, for all these years, when we built this worship center, what, some 13, 14 years, Gary Donarski, 14 years ago now, my, oh, my. When we dedicated this 14 years ago, I did not realize that we really didn't have quite the lighting that is that is necessary. We had the lighting that we had. It wasn't until, was it Thursday night, Jeff, that you were in here? Tuesday night. Okay, Tuesday night that uh, Jeff is here and he's messing with these new lights. And, uh, and then he shows me, okay, this is the lights. And then he turns them off. And it's like... Turn them off, Jeff. Let's just see. Okay, go ahead. And everything gets dark and shadow, doesn't it? It's like I had no idea how dark it was. And this took place at night, so it was even worse, okay? So go ahead, Jeff. Bring them back up. So it's like, Huh. You know, he, Jeff, had been talking about it at a board meeting for, oh, a number of times. We'd been bringing it up and suggesting it's time that we have these uh, since we've moved the platform up. I had no idea, right? And as long as I had no idea, I was like, meh, you know, no big deal. Everything's fine, right? But then I realized everything was not fine. I do have one issue with the lights, though. I find now with the lights, I want to be able to go over here and make little rabbit shadows, you know. I don't know why. But there's just this thing like, oh, I'd like to do that. So Jesus is calling out those who believe that somehow they live in a better place. He reaches out to sinners, hangs out with sinners, and calls out the saints. Three storylines from today's passage. But let's think for a minute now as we wrap it up you see the the pub, the uh the pharisees the scribes they lived their life based upon some very clearly prescribed sets of rules remember doctor uh dr pentecost in seminary he used to say there was like 365 prohibitions and 265 admonitions, you know, commands, and they had, they had figured it all out to this is how they live, and boy, they lived according to those rules. They had them clearly defined, it was in black and white. Now, got to say, there are some positive things that come out of such a clear definitions of black and white rules. First of all, rules create clarity. You do this, you don't do this. You wash this way, you don't wash this way. You uh, purify something in this manner, you don't do it in this manner. You touch this, you don't touch that. Boy, that's clear. Everything is real clear. So that makes us feel good because we know exactly what to do. Secondly, rules make sense because at the, at the bottom line of the rules is this understanding. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. And that's how we view the world. That's how we view virtually everything. It is a place where all religious systems seem to go in one way or another. And actually, it's an easy self because it makes sense. It's easy for us to push this product of, hey, if you do right, you'll get blessed. You do wrong, well, tough luck for you, buddy, because it feels like it should make sense read an article this week about somebody who came out, admitted, living in the States now, came from India, and came out of their caste system, and they were part of the Dalits, the lowest, the untouchables of the caste system. And they finally admitted while here they came out. Now, the reason they came out is because someone else has just committed suicide. A promising college student, a medical student committed suicide who was from that same background. And this other, and never came out, never admitted it. And this other came out believing we need to start speaking about this. Because within, within the caste system in India, when you are the lowest of low, and, uh, Trent is the one who opened up our eyes to this, if we didn't know it before, uh, you, the reason you're there, The reason you have it so bad now is because somewhere in a previous life you did something wrong and you're getting what you deserve. Therefore, we don't even touch you. We don't go near you. We avoid you because you're getting what you deserve. All systems ultimately go to that, don't they? The gospel of Jesus Christ is a little different than that, but it's an easy sell because it seems to make sense. Right? You made your bed. You sleep in it. Yeah, you got it. And that's how the world is. Tough luck, buddy. So that's another reason. Rules make sense. And rules make us feel good. Let's be honest. The rules make us feel good. And there's two ways we can get to feeling real good. I feel like I'm growing when I start getting a handle on the rules. See, I can either be growing intellectually because I know the rules better, I understand the rules better, uh, I know why they're in place, and I just feel like I'm really progressing in my life because I, I got a good handle on the rules and I study the rules. So they make me feel good. I could also mistakenly believe I'm growing spiritually. I could believe that I'm doing better spiritually and I'm maturing because I'm keeping the rules better. Do you realize we can keep the rules and never move one inch closer to Christ's likeness while we keep rules? That's the truth. That's the truth, and it's a, it's a devilish place to be in. But these are seemingly the positive impacts of rules. Create clarity, make good sense, make us feel good. But there are some problems with the rules also. And in Luke chapter 18, Jeff, if you could show that. Luke chapter 18, you guys are familiar with this. I'll just read it from up here. Also, he spoke, this this is sometime later in the ministry of of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I wonder whether or not he didn't throw in this parable, just because it relates specifically to what we're talking to, whether or not he hadn't dealt with this issue so often before he finally put it in and said, here, here's how it goes, okay? Luke gives us this input. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Sound familiar, doesn't it? Okay. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I'm so proud not to be like them, Lord. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I follow all the rules, don't I? And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but, and said, can we back up one, Jeff? Thanks. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here are the problems when we're working with following all the rules. Number one, rules create a false sense of confidence. Luke gave us that little introduction to that parable. Jesus taught this parable because of those who trust, trusted in themselves. When we're following the rules, we can just feel like we're doing real good, can't we? We can feel like we're on top of it. I am establishing my righteousness And that's what they were attempting to do, and they trusted in their ability to make themselves right before God. And in the process, the second thing, not only do rules create a false sense of confidence in ourselves, rules create pride towards those who don't keep them. Did you pick up the word? That they trusted in themselves and followed that with despised others. Friends, that will follow every time. Why? That's just the fallenness and prideful way that we are. That when we start thinking we're, we're getting this thing together, we're, we're pulling it all off, and our life is in a good place, I guarantee right behind that as we start pointing fingers at other people and noticing how they don't seem to quite live up, guarantee it because it's in your heart and it's in my heart, and it needs to get out of there. But rules create pride towards those who don't keep them. We've talked about our young people who are going out on foreign fields. And I told you when Amber was up here a couple months ago, I was so impressed by the work that God had done in her life and the training that she got when she went away to school and sitting and talking with her. I thought it was absolutely magnificent. Because I was concerned for him. Let me tell you why I was concerned. I recall being in a previous ministry I was at, young people would go to a particular camp. For three weeks, they would isolate themselves and focus just on the Lord. It was wonderful. And it was the I, I saw it was a typical reaction. They then came back, and now they were disgusted with their peers that their peers didn't want to serve Jesus like they wanted to serve Jesus because I've been gone for three weeks, and this is all I focused on. And I got to the point, I'd sit them down, and I'd say, Look... You've lived in a very artificial environment that for three weeks, while all your bills were paid and all your food came and all that stuff, you focused on this. That's all great. That's wonderful. They didn't have that. They're back here living in their regular life. It's not that they don't love Jesus. It's just they didn't just have this experience that you had. But I tell you, they came back and they were disgusted with their fellow uh, classmates. Amber came back. And I was concerned about this. And you know what? She came back and said, they had instructed her there to be careful of your attitude when you get back. You be careful that you don't go back and then somehow think, because you've spent this year away at college, that somehow you're better than other Christians, better than other people, that you somehow walk a little bit higher, a little bit more pleasing than Jesus. I was so impressed by the maturity that she was showing because they had taught her some good things in there about don't become pharisaical just because you've been at Bible school for a year and you've been able to isolate yourself and focus on some things. It was wonderful to see, but friends, that's what rules do. See, we set up the rules, and then, of course, we set up the rules that we think are the right rules, and then we follow the rules we set up because we think they're the right rules, and then we look down on others and say, well, they're just obviously not doing it right. I told you about the school down in uh, Florida that I watched my peers go to. That if you used the King James Bible and you got a short haircut, then your life was right before Jesus. Is about what it came down to. And I'm telling you that is some of those guys' lives were a disaster. But boy, they were happy to be able to say, I got a King James Bible and I cut my hair short. All right, that's what rules will do. Okay, rules. Secondly, rules cannot lead to the desired end. He who exalts himself will be humbled, Jesus said in that parable. He who exalts himself, he who thinks somehow, I'm good, I don't need a physician because I'm keeping the rules, is going to find out that keeping the rules cannot lead to the desired end of righteousness, the desired end of being rightly in a right relationship before God. No amount of rule following will ever do that because we need a transformation that takes inside of us. And here's the tough one. Rules blind us to our real need. He said, he who humbles himself will be exalted. If I'm keeping the rules and I've got it all in a good place, what did Jesus say in that first part? They who are well don't need a physician. And we can stay in that place. We can live in that place believing, man, I'm doing it right. I'm I, I following everything I'm supposed to do, so what more do I need? I don't need what Jesus Christ came to offer because I'm doing it right on my own. Thank you. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who acknowledges, I'm sick, I'm hurt, I'm broken up, and I need what God has, that one is the one with whom God can now lift up and say, by the blood of Jesus Christ, as you put your faith in him, I now see righteousness in you. You see, friends, true righteousness is greater than black and white rules. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And it, throughout the scripture, he kept doing that. Now, why does he keep doing that? We can't, we keep finding out he's calling us to something greater than rules. You know, the Old Testament, we can, we can read... Uh, Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, right? Yeah, all right, I haven't done that. And then we read in the New Testament, to hate her brother is murder. Ah, really? I think I've been a murderer at times. Should not commit adultery. Okay, I got that. Don't covet after my neighbor's wife. And then Jesus comes along and says, look on a woman with lust. And it's this, oh man, he raised it up so much higher. So I can follow the rules. (laughs) But when the things start getting into my very heart, I find it gets a whole lot harder. Friends, here's the reality. Here's the reality. True righteousness must be conferred, not earned. It must come through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not something that we can go out and seek and gain on our own. I referenced... um, Dr. Pentecost, who liked to put numbers to to prohibitions and and commands. I thought he made an interesting statement. The rabbis started with external observance. They started with external observance. Let's get these externals right to come to the inner life of the Spirit as a goal. We get enough externals right, and then internally everything will be good, which is not true. Jesus started, and this is the key word, Jesus started with the regenerated heart, that transformation that God does by his Holy Spirit. Jesus started with the regenerated heart to come to to the right outward observance and conduct as a result. Living out of the place of regeneration will bring us into walking lives that are holy and good and whole and pleasing to God. We will walk in those things. But when it's coming out of a regenerated heart who understands that I'm nothing but broken before the Lord and anything that I have is of his righteousness and his work and his transformation, then, you know, I no longer look down on other people. I no longer have this spirit that says, I got it right and you got it wrong, buddy, and you better shape up. Here's just a thought. I have never thought of it till this week. See if you like it. You contemplate it. Tell me if it works or not. Maybe I got it right. Maybe I don't. But I'm finishing with this thought. Here's the best thing in all of this. We can stop the impossible task of trying to earn righteousness. Instead, we can just learn to walk in it. We don't have to try and earn it. Our task is to learn to walk in it because God is shaping it in our lives. Father, thank you. Thank you that you graciously reach out to broken sinners like us. Thank you, Lord, that you graciously and kindly hang out with sinners like us. And Father, forgive us when sinners like us somehow think we don't have a need for every bit of cleansing that Jesus Christ would bring to us. We don't think we need a physician, Lord. Open our eyes to the sad reality that every day we need you to transform us more, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.